The Silver River is a five-mile-long stretch of spring-fed water that winds through the heart of Florida, just east of Ocala in Marion County. Today, kayakers and glass-bottom boat riders enjoy the crystal-clear water and the wildlife teeming just below its surface. But what most people don't know is that more than 14,000 years of human history unfolded along this riverbank, too. Dating as far back as the Ice Age, mastodons and mammoths once walked this shoreline, proven by fossils since found at the bottom of the river. In more recent history, researchers have also discovered ancient dugout canoes, evidence of a time when Native American ancestors occupied north-central Florida. Around a thousand years ago, Native Americans of Tamuqua identity settled along this riverbank, a place that was a sacred shrine to the water god they worshipped. Later, Creek Indians from Georgia and Alabama would migrate south and settle in central Florida, where they'd become known as the Seminoles. During the next 300 years, the United States gained a foothold in Florida. The transatlantic slave trade boomed, and African men and women risked their lives to escape slavery and arrive in Florida. This all culminated in three Seminole Wars, the deadliest and costliest of which had its most decisive battles fought alongside the Silver River. This is a production by WUFT News. I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. In this episode, we'll meet the Native Americans who first inhabited North Central Florida. Then we'll travel to Fort Mose in historic St. Augustine, where African-American men and women escaped slavery to answer the call of freedom. And we'll learn how all of this plays into the history of higher education in the United States. This podcast is the result of ongoing conversations with K-12 teachers, university scholars, and community leaders in Alachua and Marion counties in an effort to evoke the complexity of Black lives in Florida. This series is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. When Spanish explorers first arrived in Florida, they soon discovered that they weren't the first to occupy the land. As many of the people listening to this probably know, the city of St. Augustine was founded in 1565 by the Spanish. But of course, there were people living all over North Florida at that time. Aaron Broadwell is the Elling-Eyed Professor of Anthropology and the Chair of Linguistics at the University of Florida. And so the people who lived in North Florida, sort of in a region from uh, Jacksonville to Gainesville, uh, down as, about as far as Ocala, and north across the border into Georgia, that was the region where Tamuqua people lived. The Tamuqua was the dominant Native American group in North Florida in the 17th century. By the middle of the 17th century, there were a lot of uh, diseases and plagues happening here, as well as um, various warfare between Tamuqua and other native groups. 
And this all had the effect of really uh, reducing the population of Tamuqua people. By 1700, the Tamuqua population had dwindled from around 300,000 to a mere 1,000 people. Today, there are no known descendants of the Tamuqua tribe. Tamuquan identity is a culture and a language that for all intents and purposes, one might describe as, as extinct. Even so, UF archeologist Ken Sassaman says there's ways to recover these traces of Tamuqua influence in Florida and in Alachua County. We have tangible and intangible traces that can be consulted for, you know, for the continuity that appears to have been disrupted by European uh, incursions and colonialism. These traces can be linked back to the Tamuqua using what's called the Alachua tradition. Yes, as in Alachua County, a nod to the heavy Tamuqua influence that's been uncovered in the region. Broadwell explains that Alachua tradition is a technique used by archaeologists to link both artifacts and certain changes made to the environment to the Tamuqua people across long periods of time. So, so you, you get what are called ceramic traditions, particular ways of making pottery, but there also are other artifacts that have some details that archaeologists use to, to link people together across time. So that might include certain kinds of burial mounds, for example, um, certain ways in which villages would have been constructed. Broadwell points to a few examples in Alachua County and in Gainesville. We're talking today on University of Florida campus here uh, in Gainesville, and uh, there was a, a Tamuqua village over on the shores of Lake Alice here on the campus. And there's also a burial mound at the UF Law School. So we can tell that Tamuqua people lived here partly by their village site, partly by their burial site. This burial mound in particular has been tracked back to the Patano, a Tamuqua-speaking tribe that lived in Alachua County. Another way experts can trace Tamuqua influence in Florida is through studying their shared language. As is true for many Native American languages, Broadwell says studying the Tamuqua language is made more difficult with no surviving speakers. There are not any speakers of Tamuqua now. There probably have not been any speakers for about 200 years. Um, but during the 17th century, there were many, many documents written in Tamuqua. Um, we know that Tamuqua people wrote letters to each other and to the Spanish in their language. Two of those letters have been preserved in historic archives. Broadwell has used these documents to reconstruct the Tamuqua language and publish a Tamuqua English dictionary. Here he reads an excerpt from the Apostles' Creed translated into Tamuqua, which was used by Spanish missionaries in Florida. It begins, God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So in Tamuqua, it goes like this. Dios itimi yamquama utina anekati leta numamate utimate arekotemi bohotala. Despite the prominence of the Tamuqua and other Native American tribes in Florida, there's one group in particular that is best remembered today. One that you'll likely recognize if you've watched a Florida State University football game or passed by a Hard Rock hotel and casino a group known today as the Florida Seminoles. There's a group 
of Native people who lived in Georgia and Alabama, mostly called the Creek Confederacy. That's Broadwell again. So within the Creek Confederacy, they spoke a few different languages. There was Muscogee and Miccosukee and a few other languages as well. So uh, according to our history, what happened is that in the, uh, in the 18th century, various members of the Creek Confederacy, speaking Muscogee and Miccosukee, started to immigrate into North Florida, and those people started to be called Seminole Indians. In fact, Seminole was adapted from the Spanish word cimarron, which can be translated to runaway. Sassaman says that translation would play into Florida's reputation as a place of refuge and freedom at the turn of the 19th century and throughout the three Seminole Wars to come. So, so in many respects, Florida was a land of refuge for Native ancestors in, in their effort to evade the domination of an expanding nation state. A beacon of hope that resounded so loudly that African-American men and women risked their lives to answer its call. In St. Augustine, the Spanish government was offering asylum to freed slaves who were willing to convert to the Catholic faith. I think it was 1693 that the King of Spain decreed that if you can make it to Florida, so the first Underground Railroad, if you can come south to Florida, then you'll get your freedom. That's UF anthropology scholar Dr. Amanda Concha Holmes. She says this led to the founding of the first free black community in present-day America, Fort Mose. I think that's why people did so much, despite the possibilities of violence and, and possibly death even, to be able to stay with their families, come down to Florida, and have a life. Along this dangerous route to freedom, they sought help from Native Americans. And upon arriving in north-central Florida, they came into contact with the newly formed Seminole tribe. What emerged over the next century was a new kind of community, an alliance of freedom seekers unique to Florida's history, a group that would come to be known as the Black Seminoles. And today, some Floridians can trace their heritage back to this very history. You might not even know it, you pass them on the roads daily that that's their history. And, and the reason that, they're, that they are there and that they exist is because somebody had a mind of uh, resistance and a, a survival instinct. That's Matthew Griffin, a Black Seminole reenactor from Groveland, Florida. He spoke with WUFT reporter Malia Leiden about uncovering his family's connection to the Black Seminoles. I had a grandfather and grandmother so many greats ago um, that escaped from a plantation in Alabama, ended up in Florida near Brooksville, uh, and one of, their, one of their boys ended up marrying a Seminole uh, from that village, which was uh, Chuckachatty or Red House. Considered to be the birthplace of the Seminole tribe in Florida, the village was weakened and abandoned during the Seminole Wars, three conflicts that played out over 40 years between the United States and the Seminoles. Malia Leiden spoke with historian and archivist Dr. Anthony Dixon. He says the history of Florida is deeply intertwined with that of the Seminole Wars. We need to understand, each time that there's a Seminole War, there's a development within Florida. After the first Seminole War, Florida 
is then ceded from Spain over to the United States, and it becomes a territory. Now, some Seminole Native Americans and their black counterparts agreed to migrate out of the area. In 1823, some Seminole leaders signed a treaty that required them to leave the fertile region of north-central Florida with trees, lakes, and prairies and move farther south to a reservation between present-day Alachua and Tampa that was less valuable and harder to live off of. Many Native Americans were disgruntled about this agreement to leave North Florida, and they began to come back. Dixon says tensions rose again, and what followed was the longest, deadliest, and costliest war ever waged against the Seminoles by the United States. The Second Seminole War was incited by a disagreement over a treaty that would once again require the Seminoles to forfeit their land, and this time force them to move west of the Mississippi. And so Florida now wants to use the Indian removal policy to get rid of the Native Americans and the Seminoles that are in La Florida, now what we call Florida, because Florida is now a, a U.S. territory. In 1834, a delegation of Seminole chiefs met to discuss the U.S. demands for removal at Silver Springs. Among them was Seminole leader Osceola, who famously swayed the council against removal and thrust a knife through the treaty. Today, a statue of him stabbing the document stands on the shoreline of the Silver River at Silver Springs State Park. The plaque reads, this was the real beginning of the Great Seminole War of 1835 to 1842. By the end of the Second War, the Seminoles had not surrendered, and a peace treaty was never declared, but still around 3,000 Seminoles were removed west. Soon after, Florida joined the Union, and a decade later, the Third and Final Seminole War came to a head. A series of skirmishes between the United States and the small number of remaining Seminoles in southwest Florida. And so here again, they go into a war over the land. The war ended when the point where they felt like there weren't enough Seminole Native Americans to impede their progress. In the end, only a small band of Seminoles remained in Florida, hidden in the big cypress swamp outside of the Everglades. And millions of acres of land was now open for settlement. Only one problem remained for the United States. There were no settlers. During the Seminole Wars, Florida's population as a U.S. territory had lagged far behind that of northern states. UF archaeologist Ken Sassaman says U.S. national policy at this time was crafted to change that, driven by the ideas of manifest destiny and settler colonialism. The manifest destiny ethos of, you know, this is a, a big continent and we've colonized it now and now we're going to settle it. And so settler colonialism, I think, is a term that's appropriate for that. Expanding nation in the 19th century was uh, propelled by a, a number of legislative initiatives, uh, like the Armed Occupation Act, which coincides, of course, with the end of the Second Seminole War in 1842. To attract migrants to the new territory, the Armed Occupation Act made around 200,000 acres of land available for grants. 
If you were a white man, 18 or older, living in the United States, you could apply for a plot of land for free. Land that was, you know, basically vacated by the removal of Seminole South into South Florida from places like North Central Florida, where the University of Florida is, really just enabled anyone who was w willing to take up arms and defend the land to, to, take a, to take a piece of that territory and develop it, make it their farm, make it their, make it their, their livelihood. The catch, you had to clear and cultivate at least five acres of land build a home within a year, and bear arms to defend the property against any Native American rebellion. In a year's time, hundreds of permits were distributed to almost 1,300 settlers, including many Seminole War veterans, beginning an influx of white slaveholding families to north-central Florida, in particular to Marion County. This is the backdrop upon which the history of higher education in Florida unfolds, too. In 1851, Florida's governor signs a bill to create two state-funded schools, the East Florida Seminary and the West Florida Seminary. These schools, which later become the University of Florida and Florida State University, were first financed by the state's Seminary Land Fund, money that was reserved from the sale of nearly 100,000 acres of Seminole land. And the leases of that former Seminole land dispossessed through the Armed Occupation Act at the end of the Second Seminole War uh, was, was the funds that were necessary to, to get that operation up and running. In 1853, the East Florida Seminary opened its doors in Ocala where it was largely operated and attended by prominent slaveholding families who settled in Marion County. Collectively, they owned almost 200 slaves. Leslie Harris, a professor of African-American history at Northwestern University, says this is a shared characteristic among many American universities founded prior to the Civil War. As with many of those early campuses, the town and the campus grew together. So faculty and, of course, uh, any laborers, um, enslaved and free, you know, were part of that relatively small community. At this time, Harris says slavery was the engine of the economy and the backbone of social structure in the United States. Many of our early institutions were uh, related, intimately related to churches. And the founding, uh, many of the people who founded the institution owned slaves or had some relationship to slavery. And of course, many of the students who came, um, they came perhaps from slave-owning families. I'll say that even people, whites in the South who didn't own slaves, often aspire to own slaves. It's, uh, it was the way to wealth, and very recognizably the way to wealth, and certainly in the South at this time. Marion County was no exception, so much so that people were willing to die to preserve their way of life. Today, the only surviving document from the East Florida Seminary is its final commencement program, dated July 12, 1861, three months after the Civil War began. On it are the names of Principal Robert Bryce and the graduating class of seminary boys, almost all of whom went on to fight and die for the Confederacy, a blow that the seminary would never recover from in Ocala. Then comes another piece of federal legislation in 1862 that Sassaman says ushers in a new chapter of higher education across the country. Another piece of legislation 
that's heralded as the watershed moment in democratizing higher education, the Morrill Land-Grant College Act of 1862, signed by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Um, it really created the uh, economic foundation for state universities to crop up all over the nation. In effect, the federal government provided additional funding for existing universities from the sale of Native American lands west of the Mississippi. States were allocated land-grant status so long as they used the funds to endow colleges dedicated to the studies of agriculture or mechanic arts. In 1881, Florida takes advantage of these federal funds to build the Florida Agricultural College in Lake City. And in 1905, under the Buckman Act, this college joined the early East Florida Seminary to reopen in Gainesville as the University of Florida. It turns out, for instance, that the University of Florida was founded on the script of 90,000 plus acres from nearly 1,000 parcels of Native American land west of the Mississippi River. This is land in California, Colorado, Kansas, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Oregon, South Dakota, Wisconsin. Sassaman says that UF is not alone in this complicated history. In 2020, an investigation by High Country News found that almost 11 million acres of indigenous land endowed over 50 public institutions across the nation. And today, many universities are beginning to grapple with these histories, both of indigenous land removal and their early ties to slavery. Historian and professor Dr. Leslie Harris spearheaded this work at her former institution, Emory University. She talks about how these projects often begin as a grassroots effort on college campuses. Slavery and the university projects over the years is that they often began out of a persistent sense in institutions that something was not quite right in terms of stated goals of diversity and people's experiences of the institution. She says for many colleges, 2020 was a sort of wake-up call to begin chronicling the most difficult parts of their institution's history. You know, the George Floyd murder in 2020 had a lot of institutions and a lot of people who wanted to do something positive to push back against the horror of those moments. But Harris says it shouldn't end there. It's not only when we see the worst possible outcome that we should be proactive. We should be proactive because it's part of being a better institution. And I, I think that still continues to be the challenge of making this part of the ordinary daily work of our institutions, of our administrators, of everything that we do. Today, there's almost 100 institutions of higher learning that have publicly joined the Universities Studying Slavery Consortium, or USS, a group of colleges led by the University of Virginia committed to investigating these histories. Harris says some colleges are now documenting lesser told chapters of their history beyond slavery, too. So many of the universities who began studying slavery, many of them, their projects extend into the Jim Crow era. Um, others have addressed other racial groups, um, not just African-Americans. Many institutions have particular histories that, of course, are related to their geography and their history. And I think we're going to continue to see an expansion of those kinds of research projects. In the next episode, we'll take a look at how the Black education experience unfolded post-Civil War in Florida. 
and in Gainesville, how one school's history links the Reconstruction period to the present day, while the state's flagship university faces historical firsts amid the great pains of integration. possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. It was inspired by a series of community workshops called Decolonizing Representations, led by Dr. Amanda Concha-Holmes, who also serves as a director of this grant. A special thanks to all of the experts and community members who contributed to this podcast. Dr. Amanda Concha-Holmes, Dr. Anthony Dixon, Dr. Ken Sassaman, Dr. Aaron Broadwell, Dr. Leslie Harris, and Matthew Griffin. This episode was written by me, Gabriella Paul. The executive producer is Ryan Vasquez. For more information, please visit wuft.org slash broadcasting hope.